The Incomparable Podcast, number 66, November 2011. Welcome back to The Incomparable Podcast. I'm Dan Morin, sitting in for Jason Snell. We are convening once again our book club. Uh, this week we're discussing Ready Player One by Ernest Klein. And with me I have an elite group of panelists. Uh, I am joined by Scott McNulty. Hello, Dan. Insert uh, random 80s reference here. I, I see you came prepared. I did. Uh, in addition, we are joined by John Syracuse. Hi, John. I'm a little bit sleepy tonight, Dan, but maybe my anger will wake me up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are also have Monty Ashley. Hi, Monty. Hello. Um, intruder alert. Is that a video game that was in this book? <laughs> if not, it's the only one that wasn't. You could have just said video game in this book, and then we all would have laughed knowingly. <laughs> and, of course, Serenity Caldwell. Hi, Ren. Hi. Our topic tonight, as I mentioned, Ready Player One by Ernest Klein. Um, this is, I, I think this may be his first book, but he is a screenwriter, I believe. He wrote a, the movie Fanboys, as I recall. Um, which, surprisingly enough, <laughs> is about science fiction and geeks. Who would have seen it coming? But Ready Player One is a sci-fi book set in the, I guess you could say, the near future. Um, it seems to borrow from pretty much every property. If you're within the age of, what, say 20 to 40, maybe like every single thing that you grew up with seems to have found its way into this book somehow. Does that make it a good book? Does it make it a bad book? Does it just make it a book? I guess we'll see. So to start off, I thought we'd talk a little bit about the story of the book itself, uh, and then we can we can delve a little more into the uh, the numerous homages. But the story sort of follows this uh, this young guy Wade. We learn about him through this massively multiplayer online game that he plays, which may sound like other massively multiplayer online games, but there seem to be uh it seems to be one big metaverse style world in the in the in the ways of william gibson and, and neil stevenson and i i will start off by saying that i thought the the introduction part of this book where that story is laid out for us um was somewhat horrific and almost made me put the book down <laughs> <laughs> horrific in what way dan I think it was, uh, I think the, the the information dump aspect of it, not the ideas. The ideas were fine. I mean, the ideas were seemed like science fiction, the kind of stuff that we're used to, but it was all shoveled at you so quickly that I got bored because I felt like I was reading, you know, like a history book for something that never happened. Uh, well, you know, he just wanted to get all that information out of the way so he could delve really into his characters and tell us about their backstories. And yeah, yes, and get inside their head. Exactly. Richly paint them. Or just reference... 80s movies a lot. Yeah. So I'm I'm getting the feeling that you guys feel uh, similarly to me. Well, so, uh, you know, as someone who has never written any real fiction and doesn't write anything, I think there's something that everybody knows about the craft of writing fiction. Even if you've never written any fiction and never tried to write any fiction, there's like one rule that people know, and this book dances on its little grave. And what is that rule? Show, don't tell. Yeah. For the love of God, people. This book is like a giant exercise in what not to do. And the, the first little part that Dan was talking about, what does he do? He tells you a bunch of stuff. And it's like, I don't, I don't want you to tell me. Show me. Show me this cool world that you have. Don't tell me everything about it. And it just never stops. 
I would have really loved if there had been a way to just frame it so that the entire story is just Halliday's video, the prelude, and then we have to get the information from there. Instead, it's Halliday's video along with, oh, let me tell you all of the backstory about Halliday's video. Let me tell you about Halliday. Oh, let me also tell you about the world. It just doesn't quite work the way you want it to. A lot of telling. It reads, it reads, I mean, of course, Klein, like I said, you know, he was a screenwriter and I think it is some of it reads not so much like a screenwriter, but like a synopsis, right? Like the premise, like, all right, so here's my concept. Uh, It's a world where there's a big video game and everybody's looking for this one Easter egg that's inside the video game. Um, And then it's like, it's got like the, he's like, he wrote it the entire Wikipedia, like, (laughs) or it's a bad voiceover. In a world. Yeah, a voiceover for the trailer, voiceover for the first scene of the movie before you get to the actual movie. But none of that is really the point of the book. The idea is to get into a world where your obsessive memorization of Monty Python actually matters. <laughs> all geeks dreams. Yeah, we basically all kind of hope, right, that all this random data that we've acquired over the many, many years that we've been alive will come in handy someday, somehow. And in this world... In some ways, the geeks, you know, are the ultimate class because they are the ones who have all this esoteric knowledge. Yeah, practicing joust for hours and learning how to get through Zork in 15 minutes. That was an important skill that's going to pay off at some point. It's it's this book reads a little bit like uh, like like cognitive dissonance reduction or something like this. Like I didn't waste my childhood. These skills have use. <laughs> See, mom, I could be a I could be a superhero. Yeah, but, but you know, the geek mind rebels rebels at the idea that the, in the, there's such a vast world of things that geeks do that this book and this contest can necessarily only include a tiny subset of them, and the odd of that subset exactly overlapping with your particular subset are basically zero. So the only thing that's believable in this is that the Sixers could have a vast network of highly paid people who cumulatively could could have these skills, and they didn't waste their skills, but individually, the odds of any individual one person having the skills, let alone like the three or four good guys, all knowing exactly these specific things, the human brain can't hold that much information, you know? Well, but the, the point of the whole whole uh beginning prologue right is that they they obsessively study what holiday yeah they study but you can't you just can't this too much you just can't study that much I mean, it's 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 the they're they're the script they were led by the script to have memorized these particular movies and these but no actually they've memorized every movie in the 80s also they all have photographic memories it's you know silly in the future yes they do mm-hmm. i've nearly spent my life <laughs> learning exactly what these characters have learned but i can't go play pac-man and get a perfect score just because i uh, on your first try yeah, but well, that's because you're not trying hard enough. Aww. <laughs> well, that, that's because that's because you're not trapped in a story where every single thing that happens has is it happens for an obvious reason. It's telegraphed. And it's like, hmm, I wonder why this Pac-Man game will that be important? No, certainly not. <laughs> no. I, uh, I I have to say, it reminded me a little bit. I, I was watching at a friend's house a kung fu movie the other night, and this is a, this kung fu movie from the seventies was, was awesome, and by awesome I mean terrible. But the end up the, the the moral of the story ended up being that this this random sort of Chinese kung fu kid, this kid who had been studying it like under his father, accidentally challenges like all the greatest masters of Japanese kung fu, and like all the great masters of Japanese kung fu show up, and somehow this random kid beats all of them in all their various disciplines. He was the main character, you see. That's how that works. The more the camera points at you, the more powerful you are. <laughs> it should have been obvious to me. 
So to, to, to spell out the plot a little bit, so uh, those who are following along and haven't read the book and who may now never read the book. Because <laughs> I liked it. I, I, you know, the, I enjoyed it as well. But to, to, to sort of spell out the world, basically, there's this massively multiplayer online game in which the creator, James Halliday, has hidden uh, various Easter eggs uh, that will sort of lead people on this treasure hunt uh, at the end of which they'll come into unimaginable power, of course. And, of course, everything is locked into all these geek culture references, movies, TV shows, video games from the 80s because that's the time when the inventor grew up. So our main character is a huge uh, geek who is really into all these subject areas and is trained and you know memorize all this in the hopes that he can find this Easter egg, which, of course, he never does, and the book is really boring and ends. Wait, no, that's not this book. Okay. Um that would have been too sad. Um, I, I'm curious as to what you guys thought about the sort of the moments that we spend outside of the game in this future, which looks pretty grim. Let's talk for a moment about the stacks, because trying to imagine that visually gives me a sense. Can you of, can you explain what that? Yeah. So the stacks it, it are, is where our main character grows up. And it's basically, from what I can gather, it's that the the cities of the United States and of the world are still, you know, fairly high-functioning things. However, power and, and various other, you know, important livelihood-type things have basically died out everywhere that's not a major city. So people drove their RVs and their mobile homes and their trailers in an attempt to try and get near the big cities and then failed. And so they decided to stack their mobile homes on top of each other and create virtual apartments. Uh, and it it all sounds very dangerous and very... I, I Every time... There's a couple chapters where we're in the stacks and every time I'm reading about the stacks, I feel like I'm about to step on something with tetanus in it. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I felt like in the... the he, our main character has a place to sort of hide away that's in this junkyard in this old van that's like half crushed. Um, and that's what I kept thinking was, you know, the same, the same idea of this seems really, really dangerous. And alternatively, it also reminded me of anybody who ever read the three investigators because they had a trailer <laughs> that was buried in a junkyard, which was awesome. I totally want to. I remember that. I Those. just, I, you just activated a memory. <laughs> <laughs> Achievement unlocked. <Yes. laughs> they had a chauffeur that drove them everywhere. All the trailers are all stacked up there. The better do blow up, my dear. Yes. It's true. <laughs> Because what wouldn't be complete with a giant evil corporation blowing stuff up? Like, top of like dominoes in the movie adaptation. Just wait. They uh, so essentially, yeah. So so our hero does manage to sort of be the first one who unlocks part of this this mystery, and he comes across, uh, up against this major corporation that, as as John was talking about earlier, that sort of assembled all this raw talent um, to try and you know cheat the system more or less, and they essentially blow up his home. With his family, or what remains of his family in it, but that's okay because we didn't really like them anyway. But we did like the downstairs neighbor, and that was... Yeah, we felt bad for her for about a page and a half. (laughs) That was a weird... I mean, even even the thing with, like, the... Well, the aunt is really awful. The aunt that he lives with is really awful. Um... That's still it. It was such a bizarre choice to be like, I'm just gonna kill these people off, and really no conscience. Yeah, they went right from like from future world video game into murder. They're like that transition was not smooth. <laughs> I think that's no. still just pure geek wish fulfillment, though, because they stole his computer and wouldn't let him go online. <laughs> so naturally, they must die. I wish a corporation would blow my mom up, <laughs> not my actual mom. 
Cinderella would have done the same thing if they took her laptop. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so then we enter into this strange period where our character sort of goes on the run, but he's much more well outfitted now because he's become this, at least in the virtual world, this celebrity. So that, he sold himself out to sponsorships. I mean, that sounds like the future to me. That that whole thing, especially right after he finds the first key and then he gets the opportunity from the big giant corporation to come join them and be their head and he tells them to screw off and then they blow up his trailer. Uh, and then to, to survive, he sells himself to all kinds of companies and it just it, it it felt a little i mean i understand why it's necessary in context of the book but it, it felt very much like yes i am i am totally badass i'm going to be on a sneaker company and a and a milk carton now uh and and i'm totally above like i'm above retribution and i'm above you know Finger pointing. <laughs> were the were the sneaker company and the milk carton different things? Because like the milk cartons, because he's like missing and. Well, it's not him. It's his avatar, and you know, you know, an avatar could never be copied because there's no way to copy the image, oh, of, the image no, of your never. avatar. No one would ever do that. It would have been more realistic if they all agreed to pay him, but then his PayPal account got frozen for fraud, and he was never get, able to get any money because he couldn't get through to a human to do uh, the resolution. It's also extremely convenient that the first key that he goes looking for happens to be on the only planet that he can actually get to. I justified that in my head. I figured out that naturally the keys would have to be on a planet that Halliday had created. So naturally it's not going to be on one of these far-flung new planets. Well, they did, they justified it like crazy in the book. They were like, it kind of <laughs> makes sense, you see, because it's going to be that's a near school and it would have to be someplace because he wanted a kid to find it. It was a kid like it. They, went, they bent over backwards to justify it. That was the least of the first problem. key. It doesn't bother me because, again, we are reading a book where presumably things happen, and for the main <laughs> character, you know, presumably there's a reason why we're following this kid. So I can. It's like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right? Once to get into the world of crazy solving puzzles, I have no problem with whatever Deus Ex Machina you want to invent. So, all right, he he finds the key because it's the only planet he can visit. Great. He lived, He goes to a perfect school because no one can bully him because he's in virtual world. Fine. That that all works for me. It's it's the subsequent layers that where things become a little interesting. It's interesting is one way of putting it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so did, did anyone else find that, like, speaking of the other keys, it's the first, the second, and the third key. They made a, a lot of, especially the first key, but even the second one, a lot of, like, oh, these, these experts – especially the Sixers and everything, are racking their brains trying to figure out, like, they just can't get a foothold. They don't even know where to begin. They're just making, not making any progress. Every one of them, if you knew any part of the reference, you're like, oh, yeah, I think that's probably the, you know, something to do with the name of a D&D module. And, you know... I got the first one, the Tomb of Horrors. Yeah, because, and, and, and the, yeah. what was the second one again? I've forgotten already. I think the second, second one was, was Zork. Zork? Yeah. yeah, so the yeah. second one also was like, you know, I, not that I'm saying, oh, I solved them either. I knew exactly what it was, because you couldn't. There wasn't enough information there, really. But I... I had an inkling. I knew what I knew what references they were making and how that would manifest. Right, and it's hard to believe how hard to believe that these super experts would just be totally stumped and not know where to go and be missing the obvious. Well, not just that, but I mean, you see how many people you know today come up with you know ted, in, document every possible little obscure thing in the world. Right, right? you just put, type the, the the clues into Google. And you will get, you know. <laughs> There's no Google in the future, John. Yeah, right. The Google is gone. There is only Oasis. Uh, I mean, I work at the company that makes D&D, &D and I still play text adventures. So those clues 
didn't even read as clues to me. It was, oh, Tomb of Horrors. Oh, Zork. <laughs> I know. Well, that's that's what I'm saying. Like that, They're trying yeah. to balance it. When you're writing the book, you don't want it to be so obscure that the average reader is going to be like, no human could have gotten that. But on the other hand, you don't want it to be super easy. And I felt like if this book is aimed at geeks, every geek had some piece of knowledge that they're like, well, that seems like it's going to be this thing. It's the thing that it makes it hard to set up, right? Because the idea is supposed to be by by premise alone, right? He's we're we're locked into a world where nobody has found this thing yet, right? Yeah. So I, I think we're kind of stuck in that regard. So it's really hard to pass that bar as the author and be like, here's why it's so hard, you know, in a brain teaser fashion for everybody to have figured it out. Maybe they should have just put a lot of guns around it or something. It's kind of like scripting comedy show, right? Where you're showing, like, um, why the joke why Studio 60 failed is that the comedy <laughs> on the behind-the-scenes comedy show wasn't actually funny. It's the same basic principle where – all right, I need these clues to be hard, but at the same time, they need to be brilliant. And there's a certain level where the clues are fun, but they're not, they're not, you know, the hardest cryptography or puzzle that I've ever come across. And that's maybe where we run into trouble. That's the danger with using real information, because had, had this all been synthetic, you know, total fantasy world, no relation to our own, then you can make very clever puzzles you don't have to account for you don't you don't have to account for the varying levels of knowledge in the reader because all your readers have zero knowledge about your new world. But if it's like, well, yeah. it's, well, it's our world, but not really. Now you're kind of screwed. But as it is, I jump right past our brilliant protagonist and say, "Oh, Tomb of Horrors," yeah. and then I get mad because Tomb of Horrors was actually reprinted in different editions for second edition D and D and three point five. Which which version is it? So so what you're saying is the book's not geeky enough. And not to mention that like so the rules of Oasis are probably not, you know, standard D and D rules. If you're gonna open the door to super <laughs> geeky stuff, you absolutely have to get it right. You better know what's gonna come in. Otherwise you're asking for this kind of complaint. It's it is true. No, I knew I was in trouble with the first clue when I knew the answer and I thought, okay, so he's written this book about really geeky things so that geeks like me will buy it and then he wrote this clue so that geeks like me could solve it easily so we would feel special and he's pandering to me and now i hate him (laughs) (laughs) that's just uh it's just a set of dominoes knocking over right there it's true and then i i didn't like the book from then on (laughs) (laughs) because every reference i thought more pandering I hate this guy. <laughs> well, I think Jason made the same comment, and I'll, I'll fill in for him here. It's like the pandering, it's, it annoyed me too, for the same reasons it annoyed Scott. But the, the thing about it is, and I didn't think this would happen to me, but it did like three quarters of the way through the book. You're like, yeah, all right, reference, reference, yeah, reference, reference, reference. What they're trying to do is like you know, when you see an interesting reference, you're like, oh, wow, you know, I, I didn't think anyone knew that reference but me. But these were so common, like who doesn't know all these things? Like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, that's obscure, right? Or John Hughes movies or whatever. <laughs> They're obscure in the dark future, John. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I know what they're doing, but I'm talking about pandering to the readers. But then finally, towards the end, he threw in a reference and like, hey, I didn't think other people knew about that. Like, and he got me with one. He, you, you know, it's like, and then as soon as I read it, I'm like, damn you. You know, 8,952 references later, one of them finally lands. And I don't discount the rest of it. You've fallen right into my traps. Yeah. And, and it was uh, it was Black Tiger. The, uh, the arcade game that I played way too much oh. of that very few other people, at least in my group of friends, even knew the game existed. And this this game only existed in the lobby outside Models. It wasn't even in it wasn't even in, in the actual video arcade that he used to go to. So he used to go to Models just to play Black Tiger. That was a good. See, game. I enjoyed having a barrage of references, all things that I love, 
And then I got mad when I got to the chapter about Rush because I don't like Rush. I'm like, <laughs> I don't recognize this at all. Something went wrong with my book. <laughs> yes, and it then must... he plays an interlude on a guitar. Well, if you had an older brother who was born, you know, 10 years earlier than you, you know. If you shake the book a few times, it'll shuffle it up for you. It'll get sticks. Why wasn't it Dr. Demento song? <laughs> you know, I agree with Monty. I, I mean... I have my criticisms of the book, and I have places, like, when looking back on it, I'm like, eh. But the first, I want to say the first, le- the, the book's broken up into levels. The first level, I could not stop grinning. Because as, as absurd as it was, and all of the references, and all of this, oh, it's post-apocalyptic world, and they're, and yet they can all play this crazy video game and, and funnel time into it. All of that aside, it's really fun it's it's the kind of book where you don't have to concentrate a whole lot to figure out what's going on, so you can read it really fast and just be like, oh, yay, playing video games. I feel like I'm 12 again. And that, that kind of high is kind of is fun. It's not necessarily world literature, but it, it was still a lot of... Now, or you could just play a video game. <laughs> I want to say something about one of the parts of the book that I, I actually kind of liked, which is... So about midway through, our our hero has removed himself to it's Cleveland, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This sure. is how you can tell this book is fiction because Cleveland <laughs> is important. Well, it was it was uh, Halliday's hometown. That's what wasn't it? Or- yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, and that's that's, that's where, where they built the company. That's where they, yeah, built, the company, where they built the company, and that's where he goes so he can power and there's good internet. Good internet. Yeah. yeah that's how you know he's not just Lord British. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so he realizes at a certain point that he's going to be sort of stymied unless he can get in inside this corporation um, that is that is his main antagonist. And so he sets up kind of a, you know, a scenario in which he ends up having to infiltrate them from the inside and get some information and get out. Um, and I kind of found that to be that might have been my my I don't know if my favorite part of the book, but I I really enjoyed those scenes that were, you know because I felt like it took a little bit of a leap from the you know we were outside of the the game and we get a little more picture of this world that he lives in and particularly right. this this company and I thought that was really interesting. I was just gonna say it reminds me of uh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Uh, yes, where you know they knock down the door and they take him away because he uh, is out of he's bankrupt or something, and they, he needs to enter into indentured servitude so he can repay his uh, debt to this corporation, and then he uses his mad hacker skills to figure out what's going on. I love the idea, by the way, of indentured servitude due to credit card debt. And I'm surprised that no major this, credit card corporation is, has figured out a way to do it yet. This, this is not a political podcast. <laughs> no politics. No, I'm just amused by the idea. As in a science fiction book. No, as a as a science fiction tr- – I mean, you know, it's not necessarily particularly original in its own right either. But it, it, at least that was the part at which I felt from a plot perspective, I actually felt there was some tension in this book. Well, yeah, because, I mean, you have him throwing – basically throwing himself into a really sketchy situation. Whereas before, it's like, oh, my virtual character is at stake. But that's okay, because I'm locked in this high-tech room where everybody brings me my food, and I have a virtual butler to make sure that I'm running and fit and everything. Exactly. I'm really buff now. Yeah. Further nerd fantasies. <laughs> yeah, right. They'll find, a, they'll find a fun way to get fit. 
in in that world it's really it's very sterile and you and you do you step away from the game world so you're not being barraged with references every 10 minutes and i feel like it actually gives ernest klein's writing a bit of a chance to breathe it's you know you're you're playing with actual plot developments here not just I'm going to stack a couple of references on top of each other and try and morph it into, oh, we're going forward. He didn't necessarily have the crutch to lean on of the game and all the the homage. Um, but and, and like I said, I felt like there was actually some tension here as opposed to like Ren was saying in, in the game world where it seemed like the the what's at stake feels very vague in some ways oh if the bad guys get this it'll suck because they'll take over the game and And then make everybody pay for it and then capitalism's bad it's very very confusing what's at stake (laughs) for about a hundred pages his life's in danger until the literal deus ex machina other (laughs) founder of the company shows up and says you can all come to my super secure fortress it'll be fine hey guys it's cool come fly on my private jet did did anyone else picture him as steve wozniak okay good thank you thank you because that's exactly what i imagined i read this book right after steve jobs died it was impossible not to think of that (laughs) (laughs) well let's let's uh detour for a second and talk about some of the other uh characters in the book since you brought up the great and powerful og um but we we do have you know the character uh wade um is not he's he's got a couple friends who are helping him out with this um we have h um who is his sort of only friend um who we you know is supposed to be his sort of kindred spirit um and then we have artemis who's another hunter who's uh basically our love interest (laughs) they don't get much more three-dimensional than that um (laughs) And what about all those two Japanese guys? I was gonna say, I actually kind of like, I, I actually kind of like those guys, even if they are kind of uh, ridiculous and stereotypical. I thought the interesting part of these other two hunters that he meets, who he assumes are brothers for the longest time, are these two Japanese hunters. Um, and I think, you know, I guess I was more interested when I found out like more about them, you know, the people who are playing their characters. When that twist sort of comes up later in the book, that these two people had like never met in real life despite going around and basically pretending to be brothers and this online world. It, that was more of an interesting dynamic to me. Um, but you know, we don't spend a lot of time with them because they're kind of secondary. Did you guys have like, were there any characters that you felt that you particularly liked or felt were well thought out and well drawn? I liked Artemis before she got introduced as the love interest when she's mm. talked about more as, Oh, there's this really badass girl who is write you know, who is writing all about this in her in her web blog and keeping updates and and So she's great until she comes on screen. Is- until well when she comes on screen then it becomes I mean I don't get me wrong, I enjoy come some of the banter between her and the lead character and and she has a couple of nice moments but once it gets into the no, we can't be together because what if we what if we don't find it before the Sixers do? It's it, or oh, I'm not as pretty in real life. You don't know what I look like. And what what's the reality? She's exactly as pretty as she is in real life. She just has a scar or some kind of like Birth, birthmark. Yeah, birthmark, but still. Those those are hideous. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, what was it with that? With H, I I, I kind of saw where that was going, but I felt that it was even a bigger cheat to just like it. It's just I where I thought it was going to going it was going to be like well that she's revealed as as a girl obviously, 
and it seems logically logical that she'd be in love with the main character, but oh no, we don't want to have that kind of conflict, so let's just make her a lesbian. <laughs> it's like, whew, dodge that bullet. Well, and they, they kind of they kind of sock away any chance of actually making that interesting if, you know, if they actually wanted to make a love triangle with her and Artemis. Right, because it, may, it would make perfect sense that she would be a girl masquerading as a guy to, you know, be friends with this person, but that she would be, you know, that it would be a triangle situation. But nope, she's not even interested. She's just, just pals with them. We don't want to unduly burden Wade with any sophisticated, complicated <laughs> emotional situations. Well, let's uh, be fair. We don't want to. We don't want a love triangle in this book, anyway. Uh, I if we're talking know, about yeah, cliches. Well, this is just the silly infatuation triangle, whatever. But I still say Artemis <laughs> has more dimension than most of the female characters in the uh, the Wise Man's Fear. She does have skills of her own. She's she 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 makes choices on her own. Even so, she disengages for silly romantic reasons. It's because she wants to more or less concentrate on her work, which is, you know, noble. <laughs> I'm sorry, honey. I have to concentrate on my blog. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it just shows she's not just like, oh, I'm lovesick, but no, I shan't. I mustn't. Throw. She's like, no, I've got work to do. She's not. She's she's not pining. And she and she does stuff on her own. She doesn't need to be rescued. She doesn't. You know. You know. She finds the second key before anybody right. else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I mean there there are definitely things about her character that I like. Uh, I the interaction between the two main characters is just kind of like, eh. But she has she has good qualities. H has interesting qualities, even though we they're all they're all very tertiary. That's the problem is is you you get these hints that these characters could actually be really, really interesting. But because the book is so very Wade focused, you don't get much more than that. Well, we're in his head. So, you know, yeah. by that regard, we are sort of locked into him. Um, what about the uh, the antagonists? Oh, the Sixers. Cardboard cutouts. Oh, so two dimensional. Yep. Nothing going on there. There's nothing. Literally. Yeah. It's, come on, they're the evil corporation, and what do they do to show they're evil? They blow up a stack of trailers. And they cheat in the game, and they do everything possible to win unfairly, blah, blah, blah. They are ever so naughty. They all dress alike. They have boring avatars. It's true. (laughs) That's just offensive from the, you know, purely aesthetic. You know they're evil. They're stormtroopers. They actually yes. share accounts, man. You just don't do that. <laughs> I mean, you don't know where that account's been. That's, that's, <laughs> that's unsanitary. It's true. They have a starship, though, don't they, in right. the game? So that's kind of cool. And a planet. Mm. They have like a. Everybody gets a robot later on, which is pretty awesome. And <laughs> so there are benefits to being evil. But I wondered about the. Uh, did anyone else wonder about the intellectual property issues? Yes, I was just going to say <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> well, I was going to say the, there's obviously a movie adaptation of this coming, and this is going to be a yes. nightmare from a licensing perspective. Well, I think they'll just have everything from one property, from one like, studio. Uh, I don't know if you can keep making the movie. Yeah, well, I don't know. Like GE and NBC own enough things that surely you can just. It's, they don't own Wizards of the Coast. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. I mean, you can write you can write a decent amount off on parody, uh, but that being said, it's. I don't think it's parody when you're mouthing the words to Ferris Bueller. It's not parody. <laughs> yeah, that scene is going to be hard to do because um, we're going to have to watch the entirety of Ferris Bueller inside exactly. the entirety of Ready Player One. This movie is going to be like eight hours long. They do oh, have stats. that as a game now on Connect. It's just. Yeah. Uh, just a scene, and apparently it's really annoying to play more than once. 
But I wondered how this actually worked in the world of the game because they have all these like they have the spaceships from like Firefly and Star Wars and Star Trek. And it's like, oh, yeah, intellectual property ceased to exist for the same inexplicable reasons that all other values that we have today are disappeared. Once they uh, ran out of gasoline. (laughs) No, I mean, look at look at the muds that popped up in the 80s and the mushes. I mean, no one had the rights to create a Star Wars mush or a cowboy bebop. Yes, but that was text. But I'm still saying it's the same. It's well, but this this game is free to play. Well, this is this is world spanning, right? But it's the world. It's the world b- branching out of our world, right? <laughs> Look at City of Heroes. You can't even have a character named Wolf Arine with claws. <laughs> <laughs> but doesn't he mention in the book that um, so everyone gets an oasis, a free Oasis account, right? And then you you your avatar is kind of plain, and you have to pay to get other cool stuff. Uh, so one imagines if if everyone on the world is playing Oasis, all these companies would license their property so that you know players could buy you know uh, you know an enterprise for you know whatever a hundred bucks, and then Paramount would get a hundred dollars or you know probably thirty percent or whatever it would be. Uh, so it kind of I mean I don't know if he went into that detail in his head, but I will assume he did, and that is how it explains all of those things in the uh, Oasis. I guess it's just a good thing that every one of Halliday's childhood obsessions was owned by somebody who was willing to sign a license fee to this game. (laughs) Exactly. I also thought it was strange that the most powerful person, you know, that we have this character, Halliday, and I also thought it was weird that his his character in the game is named after, like, a jacket. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and in some ways this whole, the quest, I mean, everything about this book is is basically a trope, right? Like, the plot, the characters, and the homage. And I guess, you know, it seems like it's one of those situations that should be uh, a perfect storm of things that people like. And yet, it doesn't quite seem to succeed. It just I mean, it doesn't have that one thing that people <laughs> like, which is a, uh, a, story, a story that keeps them guessing. You know what I mean? Like, we find pandered to whatever, but you want to... You you want to be ca- like I I was going through the story, but it was just you just saw it where it was going, and there wasn't much surprise. Yeah. And that's why the Pac Man scene stood out so much because there was so little in this thing that you knew, kind of like in a movie that you knew anything they show you, it's like oh well you know that's going to be significant. It's probably going to save him in the end, and because no one else oh, is yeah. doing it, like there wasn't enough stuff for it. Like a, in a good mystery, even a short little mystery novel, there can be enough stuff going on that you can't immediately pick out aha when that guy came into the room, put that thing down. That was important because so much other stuff happens in the story, and you wrap up in the people. And this thing, it was just everything was just poking up out of the the ground, really tall. Like here's this tower which is this plot point this tower which is this plot point and it wasn't any meat on the bones you know you can blame part of that on again ernest klein being a screenwriter first and foremost but i think also it reflects it's kind of a microcosm of the 80s culture that it represents because i feel reading the book i feel like it's going and watching like an 80s movie and it's you know watching war games where war games isn't high art and a lot of it's predictable but it's still oh careful careful you you've angered john syracuse (laughs) how dare you hey war games is one of my favorite 80s movies it's a it's a two-hour movie you know it's like uh, this is this is a much longer than a screenplay it is a much it is a much longer book but i'd say it reads it reads like a two-hour movie, for better or for worse. Well, that's because it is a two-hour movie, and it's, you know, it's the film has already been optioned, so it's clear that he wrote this. And he is a screenwriter, right? So he wrote a screenplay in book form, and now it's going to be a movie, and the movie's going to annoy me even more. So, 
just out of curiosity, did any of you see Fanboys? <laughs> yes. Movie? I have some stories to, to share about Fanboys. <laughs> Please, Monty. Okay. Actually, I want to tell a quick story about Ernie Klein's first screenplay, which was a fan-written script for the theoretical Buckaroo Banzai Against the World Crime League. Okay. So this is not his first pass at writing something full of fan references. Somewhere in the early 90s, he got impatient because Buckaroo Banzai is a great movie and it claimed to have a sequel and it wasn't happening. So he wrote one that kind of mashed it together with Big Trouble in Little China, as you do. And it's pretty fun. I actually contacted him back then and emailed him and told him I liked it. And a friend of mine did too, and he put her Hong Kong Cavalier character into his script. But not you. No. Not you. I'm sorry, Monty. He didn't like my Hong Kong Cavalier character as much. (laughs) I maintain the name Platinum Cowboy is totally Buckaroo Banzai appropriate. (laughs) Anyway, for fanboys, I don't know if people know this. The basic plot of fanboys is that people want to go see The Phantom Menace before it comes out. Because that's when people thought Phantom Menace was going to be a good movie. So these band of geeks get in a van, they go cross-country, and they break into Lucasfilm, and I think they get caught, and then they see the movie. What's weird is that the movie, as made, cuts out an essential plot element, which is that one of them is dying of cancer. Oh, yeah, I've heard this story, yes. Well, and that's that was actually, that actually is, I, I, I recall that being in the version that I saw. I thought they put that back. I thought he basically held out until they put it back in because it was it was a big deal. Like, I remember them going back and forth about, like, whether or not to take out this plot because um, I remember seeing it with some friends and, like, saying, like, telling them afterwards, like, oh, yeah, they wanted to cut that whole thing out. And they're like, that makes no sense without that. <laughs> like, the movie has no plot without without that. The one I saw didn't have that in, so I may have to go back and watch it again. Because okay. the version I saw was just people decide to go break in and see the movie a week early for no reason. Which seemed odd. Yeah, which is which is a weak a weak plot. Just a little bit. Anyway, what's especially odd about the movie is that the sound was done by THX Sound. So Ernie actually got to go to Skywalker Ranch, where THX Sound is located in a giant barn. And he was watched very carefully, because apparently somebody who's written a script about people breaking into Lucasfilm <laughs> is not entirely trusted while walking around loose on Skywalker Ranch. I'm going to call his Star Wars credentials into question, though, because the, of that section where he talked about uh, uh, that he had gone through all the holy trilogies, and he lists Lord of the Rings, The Matrix, and stuff like that. Well, one of the ones he listed was Star Wars, and he says you're supposed to watch the original and prequel tr- trilogies in that order. And the fact that he's telling you to watch the prequels at all, Matt, sorry, <laughs> right out. Now, I, I actually just consulted Wikipedia to remind myself, and I did. now I recall this. Um, so, basically, the director... Uh, they took the cancer storyline out, and then before they released it, they gave the director 36 hours to re-edit it back in, which he did. <laughs> and it was released with that in it, or at least there was a release with it in it. Um, oh, my. It was, huh. it's, it's, not, it's, it's actually a pretty good movie. I, I, would, I thought it's pretty entertaining. I mean, clearly it's from a guy who's a huge Star Wars nerd. It also has one of the best ending lines of, of any movie. Um, so I, I he, clearly this is you know he this is a guy with a lot of appreciation for for pop culture. I guess what gets down to me in the end is the the curiosity of whether he has anything sort of of his own to say because <laughs> I feel like everything he does piggybacks on this 
And if you strip away all those homages, like another another series I, I really love that that is big on the homages is Spaced, which is a show that's it's a sitcom, which is slightly different. But there's a lot of homage in there, but it it somehow is only adds to it's in service of its own story that it's telling about people. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's a, there's a, if you clip that out. It would the story would still yeah. hold up, and that's it's more like it's part of the character. It, they space use references the same way like regular people like us use references, and then it's part of our life, but it doesn't define our lives. You know, it, but we will right. use them to illuminate a situation we find ourselves in, but the situation itself is not directly related to some sort of sci-fi or pop culture thing. You know, I guess what I like about Ernest Klein is that I believe his obsessions are sincerely felt. It's not like he went to IMDb and said, I'm going to make reference to the top five science fiction movies. Well, I, are you sure about that? Because that's one of, that's one of my complaints. Like, I, I've, some of them I can say are sincerely felt, but in one particular aspect, which is very essential to this book, had me questioning whether he actually plays modern video games, MMOs in particular. Like, I, because it's easy to, to like, Pac-Man, fine. We all, there's not, you don't need to be, like, into Pac-Man to understand the concept of the perfect game and stuff like that. But the way his game world works makes me think, and the way he describes technology in general makes me think, is maybe he's not, like, maybe he doesn't play modern video games. Maybe he's not really that into technology, you know? Well, yeah, I think his future world is not so much based on a logical expansion of MMOs so much as reading Snow Crash. Well, I, I mean, the thing is, he didn't put it far enough in the future, you know. I, I like, I, don't know, I have a whole bunch, of, a whole list of quibbles and notes. Maybe I'll save them for the end, more in style. But a lot of the stuff in the book <laughs> made me made me think that uh, it just gave me hints that, like, if you set your thing really far in the future, I'll give you, uh, to uh, compare it with another sci-fi author who I like, but who just makes up ridiculous stuff, like Vinge. Vinge make his technology. Vinge makes up is just nonsensical, but it's so far in the future and so distant from what we have that. As long as it's sort of internally consistent, you go along with it. And I found Vinge's stuff more believable than this, even though this was like 98% the same as our technology, just, you know, a little bit extrapolated. But then he messes it up. Well, I think the problem is if you set this book 200 years in the future, you've got people living in a weird cargo cult, obsessively (laughs) redoing things from really long ago. Well, you joke about everybody's remaking movies over and over and over again, and soon we won't have any movies left to remake. I feel like, yeah, that runs out after about 40 or 50 years. Well, I think that'd be an interesting book. Do that, but iterate over that for a thousand years and show me that book. Just have it have it be less recognizable, but then eventually realize, wait, I see, I see what's going on here. There, you know, this is what John Hughes movies are like in the future. <laughs> Your mention of the cargo cult just made me compare this even more to Snow Crash, yeah. um, which I, which I think is, you know, obviously one of these sort of seminal metaverse style, uh, you know, uh, pieces, and I, I feel like it kept crashing up against this in some ways, and yet uh, Snow Crash is for me unarguably a better book, um, but it doesn't quite have the same links into popular culture, I guess. But I guess maybe they're also just very different things. Did you? Uh, did any of you guys find anything in particular that you felt like stood out from this as a book? Because I heard I was talking to a friend about Ready Player One the other day, and he said, um, "You know, there's been a lot of people saying that this is, you know, oh, this is a nerd classic, and we should replace, mm-hmm. you know, Ender's Game with with Ready Player One." And I just both of us were sitting there going, mm-hmm. "How do you think this book will last?" 
is that backlash against Orson Scott Card? Maybe? <laughs> well, I mean, and that's one thing. Like, you know, that's a whole separate issue. But I think I I would say Ender's Game is a vastly better book than this. I mean, yes. and it's just... Or perhaps that is uh, suggested by people who have not read Ender's Game. And this is the only <laughs> science fiction book they have ever read but in their I mean, life. Is this a game? Is this a game? Is this a book? Is this a game? <laughs> this is not a game. Real. <laughs> and it's hardly a Is this a book. a book that has any longevity to it? Or, you know... No, this book has an expired date, and it is like six months ago. Yeah, well, I feel like it has to be read by somebody exactly my age with exactly my background. Somebody ten years younger isn't going to care about half of it. I mean, speaking as the 10 years younger contingent. Oh, uh, you're probably more than that. I think I'm yeah, just got to run this in every show, you know. Uh, uh, only because you all make me. Speaking as someone who's young and hip. <laughs> this is jive turkeys. It's something that I was kind of considering while I was reading the book and then also afterwards. Uh, for some reason, after I finished reading it, I was contemplating the idea of a language built out entirely of pop culture references because I feel – like and not to go all high and mighty judging society here but why not do it go <laughs> take it society because we're you know 50 minutes in the podcast society sucks uh, no younger younger children i kind of feel like on the whole a lot of the big things and the the big important stuff that we're into is all it's all older culture it's like it's cool and hip for a 13 or 14 year old to like 1980s movies right now it's cool and hip to dress in 1980s styles there's not really a defining you know damn it only missed it by 25 years guys i I was so close so close but it's it's strange and what the people who are saying ready player one is going to be a seminal classic i kind of wonder if that's not based on the the trend of culture right now, which is basically regurgitating old things. Well, well, that goes in cycles. I remember American Graffiti was not released in the time when people were dressing like that, but there was a nostalgia for that period, and there was kind of that that craze of bringing back that thing. But the you know that passed. You know, did we ever bring back the sixties? We brought back the fifties for oh, a yeah, long time. Sure. We still do yeah. that. You got the fifties diners. Oh, the sixties totally. I mean, you know, I think when I was growing up in like the nineties, when I was a teenager, like there were a lot of people who were very into the hippie culture. Mm-hmm. Um, that was clearly a big part of the 60s. I, and when I grew up in the 80s, you know, I listened to the Beatles a lot when I was a little kid. And, you know, I think that at that point, you know, that band had been broken up for over a decade. So, you know, we always look back. So the, well, the, Beatles, is a, the Beatles is a good example of something that's like long lasting. Like that'll go on for a long, long time because it was like, you know, the first big important rock band and stuff like that. But this is not the first big important sci-fi book. It's not no. the first big important sci-fi book involving video games. It's not the first, it's the first of anything, really. Well, it's most emphatically not the first of anything. That's the whole point. Yeah, but it, and it's not even the first, like, iteration on pop culture. You know, it's not even the first. It's not even the first meta, meta science fiction. No. So I, I don't. It's not sticking around. I mean, no. Yeah. And if it is, we will hunt it down and kill it. That's right. <laughs> it's a fun book, guys. <laughs> I still liked it. Oh. All right. So we have Monty and Ashley on the side of it's. It's a fun book. Those are both me. We have Scott and John on the side <laughs> of the angels. I mean, on the side of it's terrible, and I would probably lean towards that side. But I mean, I enter. I enjoyed parts of it. I don't want to wipe it entirely from my brain, I guess, which is which is a win for a book. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, it was fun to read it, but I so I read it. My uh, well, a I turned against the author partway through, which is not good. But um, <laughs> is he chained up in your basement? Or? He, oh, I don't have a basement, so I killed him. Uh, the no place to put him. 
uh, I <laughs> came right, through. Right. So I was, you know, the hype on this book was like, oh my god, this is going to, you know, redefine the field of science fiction, and you have to read this book because it's going to be super great. So I was like, all right, I'll read this book. It's going to be super great. Those are all people who have never played video games are saying that. Apparently, I wish I had the copy I have, which I got out of the library because I read the. If you read the back, the quotes they had on the back, and I know quotes are – the blurbs are terrible because they're always, you know, people pimping stuff. But I went down the list of the people. I'm like, these are people I really like and respect. And These are good people. But they're all old. I guarantee you they're all old. <laughs> they no, old. some of them aren't that much older Here is the list of names. I have the book right here. Oh, thank you. Top Charlene Harris, author of the Suki Stackhouse series. Mm-hmm. Uh, old or don't, or don't play video games. <laughs> I was going to say older girls, but I didn't want to offend anybody. Oh. Number two, Terry Brooks, author of the Shannara series. Never mind. <laughs> I take back everything I said. Stop reading now. Uh, later on, there's John Scalzi and Patrick Rothfuss. See, I like Scalzi and I like Rothfuss, which, but it's it's weird that I mean Scalzi and Rothfuss is like getting your friends though to to do blurb your book. I mean, it's like it's like marketing. That's like I mean, yeah, those are the that's your crowd, right? Yeah. Like you you figure there's cross promotional marketing, mm-hmm. I guess. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, I guess that's neither here nor there. But it it was I liked like. Like Scott was saying about it being hyped up, I was like, wow, okay, this sounds pretty cool. And like the idea of it sounds cool enough, but yeah. I found the execution did did fall kind of yeah, flat that, at times. Speaking of execution, though, like so when people, especially when people on the show like Monty or Glenn or whatever, say they're like one or two or three degrees separated from the people who actually wrote the book. I I start to feel bad about saying bad things about the, <laughs> about the people who wrote the book because like I don't want to hurt people's feelings. Oh, yes, and stuff he, like that. You know, you know, Jason is best friend with best friends with Val Kilmer. Oh, oh. I, and I'm I find myself like censoring myself. So one of the things I had in my notes here, and like, and I'm censoring myself on this for several reasons, but I think I should just say it and go against my better instincts is here is when do it. Well, I'll I'll start with this. First. Ratings. This the central question to me when I'm reading this book. I've already like turned the Scott corner and I'm like against it and you know I'm I'm fuming about various things. But the central question. Well, I don't know if I want that to be called the Scott corner. <laughs> yeah. but, oh, it's, it's a Scott corner. It's got your name and printed in the cement on it. Uh, is is this book supposed to be written uh, like it was written by a teenage boy, like it's his journal, or is it just supposed to be a book from the perspective of a teenage boy? But written by a professional writer. You see what I'm saying? Because when I read it, it reads like if I was 13 years old and started in my little salt and pepper notebook to write myself a novel about uh, the video game world. And that sounds awful, but but like, but then I stopped myself and said, wait a second. No, he's a professional author. Like, I, I maybe I don't really know much about this guy. Maybe he's trying to write it like it's that 13-year-old. Because it really does read like Wade, the, the character in the book, wrote this book. So what do you guys think? Is it – am I – is he a genius and it's supposed to be written that way or is he just a terrible writer? <laughs> well, I'll give him that. Is It's very much in Wade's voice. You can't deny that it's in in the 18-year-old's voice and they were in his head. I think it I think it reads very much like a screenwriter tried to write a novel. <laughs> it's supposed to appeal to the 13-year-old geek in all of us. The, the question about it being written by like well it's it's, it's as if it's written by Wade is okay then. Can I write a book that looks like a book written by someone who has no idea how to write fiction? Because I can write that book right now because I have no idea how to write fiction. And when they say, this is a horrible book, I say, no, 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 you don't understand. It's <laughs> it's from the perspective – like it's, it's, you know, it's first person. It's from the perspective of a character, and the character in the book doesn't know how to write fiction. So this is his journal, and that's why I'd make all the same mistakes that – you know what I'm saying? I'm going crazy reading this book thinking, is he a horrible writer or am I going crazy? 
If you can do that and simultaneously mm-hmm. tell a good story, then yes, P.G. Woodhouse created Bertie Wooster, who's an idiot, but Bertie, as a protagonist and as the narrator, still manages to somehow convey a complicated story. But that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, there are, there are books like that where they'll be written, you know, it's first person and the character tells you everything and it's in the voice of the character, but... The thing that burns me about this is that, but, Ber- but Birdie doesn't come across as like, uh, there's a difference between the way it's written. Right, and the right. Voice. It's not. It's, right. It, this comes across like bad, like not not quite grammatically bad writing because it's not <laughs> grammatically bad, but like to the point of it's very it's very simplistic writing. Like a lot yeah. of the sentences are like he did this and then he did this. Well, I I pulled out I pulled out a couple examples here. Okay, so, <laughs> uh-oh. Uh-oh. so uh-oh. this is uh, all right. So we'll start with this one. Uh, this one was. Uh, Shut your hole, Penisville, Iraq replied, using his favorite mispronunciation of my avatar's name. Using his favorite mispronunciation of my avatar's name? You don't write that. Like, you don't, you don't, ex- like, we understand that his name is Parsival. You have the guy say Penisville, you know, it, it's, you don't put com. So it's your show not, it's your show not. Yeah, Harris right. And it, what, what up, Humperdinck? This was a game we played. I always called him by some random H name. Harry Hubert Hogan. I was, blah, blah. We, we'll get it if you just keep calling him H. His name is H in the game. We're not idiots. Like, but that's what you would write if you were like, if you're 13 years old because you wanted to write out the part that says, see how clever it is. I thought that he should always be called by an H name, you know, and that stuff is what a kid would write in his little notebook when he's writing a story, but it's not what Wade would think you know it's it's i don't know it i drive myself crazy it's what he would think but it's yeah it's not something that should actually be in the book yeah well it's something you think when you're not because when you think you don't filter your thoughts right like they just all happen whereas when you're writing stuff down you're choosing right and that's what makes you either a good writer or better and and the worst the worst thought i had which is when i'm reading this especially after i read like all the reviews of it and all things you're talking about everyone saying this is the greatest book ever and stuff like that I, i i thought to myself and this is not true but i actually have this thought that I could write something like this. This is famous. This guy's getting famous. I could write this, which is not true. I totally could not write it. I could not even write, you know, not even close, right? But the fact that that thought occurred to me shows how angry I was at the the craft of writing on display <laughs> in this book. It just angered me. Ugh. All right. So for everybody listening out there, John Syracuse highly recommends you read this book. <laughs> yes. And also claims that he can write a better novel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think we're it's NaNoWriMo, John. We're getting, we're getting, we're getting. Yeah, you're only eight days late. Get on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I know I can't, but the fact that thought even entered my head just shows how what a place this book drove me to. <laughs> All right, so we're we're getting close to the our allotted time here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask if anybody else wants to throw out anything about this before we before we wrap up. Did anybody? Did I not hit anything? Something on any of your lists? The, I would say what I liked was the references. Because they were directed at me. Well, I would be fascinated to read a version of this book where all the references were either imaginary or things I didn't get and see what I thought of it. <laughs> so if it's all a book entirely about Rush. Well, <laughs> the Umberto Echo book, The Mystery of Queen Loana, is also a barrage of references. But it's a barrage of references to Umberto Echo's childhood in Italy. And it makes no sense to me at all. <laughs> I think this podcast may be the only time that this uh, that Ernest <laughs> Klein will be uh, compared to P.G. Woodhouse and Umberto Eco. <laughs> it's just like that Umberto Eco book. <laughs> that Eco book is just a series of somebody saying, oh, and then I picked up this book from my childhood. Memory, memory, memory. Oh, and there's a picture I liked. So it's like a, like a seven-year-old tells a story. 
Well, no, the sentences are a lot longer and more complex because <laughs> yes. he's a professional semiotician. Like, unless my favorite thing from this book, I think my favorite thing about this book was... Is that you've, it's over? You finished it? Was that... Uh, <laughs> it has a bright color on the cover? It shows something, something that I suspected for a long time, is that you could make a good story about the things that we enjoy about video games. Like, you know when you're playing a video game and you get, you know, you... It's an enjoyable experience, and it's hard to relate relate that experience to somebody who doesn't play video games, perhaps. And I like to think yes. that this this book, even though it's kind of just a minor aspect of it, could show like having this artificial rule uh, world with this set of rules and the things you can do it and the, and the exploits that you have there can be fun. And I like the fact that it was it was so close to modern MMOs that it wasn't like like Ender's Game or some other fantasy type thing where it's just so far in the future. And it's like, well, we have nothing like that now. It's like we have things like this now, and people experience without the trail blowing up part but you know experience in the games this type of experience and see it's kind of exciting and i'll be interested to see if they can make a movie out of it that also expresses the you know this is the fun that people have playing games and here it is on the screen because whenever they do it in movies it's always so horrible and even in this book i was kind of sad at the end where they're like see and in the real world is the only place where you can really have any fun no the game is fun too you know that moralizing (laughs) at the end i just want to punch him (laughs) <laughs> it's like in the end don't you know that we have to like yes okay fine to, to have actual sex instead of cyber sex that's better I'm, I'm with you there but but like video games are fun too that's real those are real fun experiences so that was my favorite part of this book is that it showed it can be done and you don't have to pretend it's in some fantasy world that has no relation to our own so maybe the movie of this won't be any good but the video game adaptation of the movie will be excellent oh, I don't even want to think about it just like the Matrix oh. video games those were awesome <laughs> And then the novelization by Umberto Eco <laughs> of the video yes. will be Oh, it all comes around. And then the D&D module based on the adaptation of the novel of the video game of the movie of the book will be available in stores. Um, all right. I think I'm going to leave it there. Uh, we're going to come back next time on the book club and talk about uh, another book that also, strangely enough, deals with uh, multiplayer online games, although that it takes a sharp left turn. And that's Neil Stevenson's Ream D. <laughs> It takes a sharp left turn and then goes for six miles. <laughs> <laughs> On foot. Six? You think it was just six? <laughs> Anyways, that's for next time. So I'd like to uh, thank all of my panelists. Scott McNulty. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. It really was. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Syracuse. It was a pleasure. Uh, Monty Ashley. Game over. And Serenity Culver. Oh, so much fun. Well... Thank all of you, and for Jason Snell, uh, this is The Incomparable. We'll see you next time. Oh, you want, to, you want me to go through my, my complaints here? Is un, yeah, un- yeah. tech worlds building? All right. Uh, so at one point, <laughs> they rattle off that, that Oasis can handle up to 5 million simultaneous users with no discernible latency and no chance of a system crash. That's like you don't understand technology. No, no discernible latency, so the speed of light is suspended now. You figure if they have a handle on the speed of light, their energy crisis would also be solved, you know? And no chance of a system crash, right? Whatever. And it's a new overclock processor that's so fast it's cycle time bordered on precognition. First of all, overclocking, that was like so two decades ago. And cycle time bordered it's on retro. precognition makes no sense. 
sentence. That's like if I asked my mother to write a sentence about how fast the CPU was. A 10, 10 zettabyte flash drive? Does anyone know how big a zettabyte is? Anybody? 10 billion terabytes. You could give a one terabyte hard drive to every man, woman, and child on Earth and still have to like stack a few on their heads. And then, and then he he transfers ten zettabytes of data in in just over three hours. So that's just that's just shy of if my math is right. And I did this a few times. I think that's one billion terabytes per second. I don't know where they're getting that kind of throughput. It doesn't really make much Cleveland. sense. Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, Thunderbolt. He mentioned, Thunderbolt is going to fix all of this. He mentions that if his avatar is killed, he'd lose all his stuff. And the three levels he'd managed to gain over the past few years. What kind of MMO has a thing where you pay for a few years and you're level three? Not a successful MMO, that's what. Uh, you don't well, have to sneak off to a it's free truck. It's free. In order to play. He mentions that one of the guys, I think it was Ogden or something, had had played. He'd played all of his games. He said they were actually pretty good. He was a decent coder back before he sold his soul. Maybe he was talking about the Sixer guy. He's a decent coder. You're not. You don't these days in any modern era. You don't make good games of being a decent coder. Coders don't make the games. It's the art assets and the you know you need a huge team of artists and writers to make a game. It's not a coder. I think that's that's the end of my short list that I compiled before the thing. But just these technical. You wait, wait till I wait till you hear my podcast on the Steve Jobs bio if you want to hear more of this. <laughs> but, oh dear. 